Hello everyone, I'm Tyler Cressman, and welcome to this week's Cressman Conversation. So this week was a fairly boring one in the news. Um, the Trump impeachment stuff continues to move forward. It's getting a little more interesting, but we're still going to hold off on talking about that until next week sometime. Uh, maybe next week. Depends on how these inquiry keeps going. Whenever something interesting happens, we'll talk about it. Whenever it looks clear one way or the other which way it's going to unfold, we'll have a more thorough discussion. Uh, but I don't want to talk about that. Uh, I thought about talking about the Tulsi Gabbard, Hillary Clinton dust-up, but it you know, it didn't really seem like the kind of thing that warrants a whole podcast. Uh, and I don't really want to talk about the Democratic field until it kind of narrows down and we have a feeling of which way this thing is going to go. So instead, this week we're going to talk about one of my absolute favorite topics. Uh, we're going to talk about why socialism is evil and capitalism is awesome. Uh, so we'll start with the first misunderstanding, the misconception that I think a lot of people start as baseline. That capitalism is based on greed and selfishness and inherently is immoral, while socialism is more moral because it's based on altruism and the ability to care for others. So this is uh, entirely incorrect. Capitalism is not is inherently more moral of a system because it is entirely based on voluntary interactions between consenting parties. So if someone wants to, for example, if someone wants to start a business, they have to make a product that people want to buy. And those people have to be willing to pay the price that those other people set. They have to agree upon it between themselves. The, and people do this millions of times a day. People make choices about the goods and services that they want to spend their money on and spend that money accordingly. So people go to work, they make money, then they use that money to buy goods and services at a price that they agree with a other consenting producer. They have these transactions a few times a day and on a scale of 350 million people, this is hundreds there's billions of transactions every single day that happens in a voluntary system between consenting parties. This is in, this, there's nothing wrong with this in, in terms. It, capitalism is, in a sense, more moral only because everything that you do under a capitalist system, you volunteer to do. It's great. Whereas socialism is the opposite of that. Instead of millions of people making millions of transactions every single day, Socialism grants the power to decide who needs what to a handful of governmental overseers. They get to decide how much and how much of any good or service the, the average person needs, and then they get to distribute them accordingly. Now, socialism is forced altruism to a degree that people don't realize it's actually a problem. The people who grow up in America take for granted the liberties that our Constitution provide us. They make terrible arguments about how America is already socialist and then point to the worst-run programs in the country as proof, things like Social Security and Medicare uh, being the big examples. The most inefficient and costly programs the United States government runs, those that are currently spiraling towards bankruptcy, those are the best examples of socialism that you can find in America, the worst programs that our country currently operates. Uh, yes, we are socialist like every other country. I, I'm not an anarchist. 
We're socialist like every country is socialist in the sense that the government should exist to some degree, but the government should only exist in the realm that we, as a overall consenting governed people, should agree to. So the government should exist in the most basic forms. Like what is the form of government in the first place? It is to protect your life, liberty, and your pursuit of happiness. So this means basic services, things like police officers, the military, fire departments. I'm even, as a libertarian, I'm even open to the idea that government should provide things like infrastructure and education, things that almost every single person can agree on. The other programs that government runs, they run poorly and ineffective. And what they do is essentially take choice away from me. These other programs don't do that. The other programs like the police and military, they don't take choices away from me. They don't restrict my access to certain goods and services. They just provide a safety net that prevent my neighbor from harming me or me from harming my neighbor. They protect our property rights and our individual rights to life. Uh, but these other systems, these other programs, they don't do that. Because what they do is actually just take from me and don't give me anything in return or give me things I don't ask for. And again, as, a, as the governed people, we need to be conscious of the fact that unless an overwhelming majority of society agrees with something, we shouldn't implement it. 51% of the country shouldn't agree to something and impose it on the other 49%. If 80% of the country agrees on something, we should probably do it. But if 51% wants a program, that program probably shouldn't exist. We shouldn't live in a simple majority. And this is something that people don't, who advocate for socialism don't understand. It's that idea that we're going to implement these programs. They're going to be costly, ineffective, uh, inefficient, and they're going to be run worse than the private sector. And the only examples that they can point to in this country currently are the worst programs that we have. Uh, if you look abroad at actual socialist countries, let's look around the world. Let's do a quick spin around the world. And you tell me the socialist country you want to live in. How about Cuba or China or Vietnam? or Laos, or Cambodia, or Bangladesh, or if we look back through history, how about the Congo, or Nicaragua, or the Sudan? How about your full-on communist states like the Soviet Union or North Korea? There are absolutely no examples through history of a successful socialist state. Would you like to live in any of those countries that I just listed? Do any of them sound like pleasant places to live? No. In fact, most of them on that list are responsible for the biggest massacres of the 20th century. Look, uh, looking at you, China. Looking at you, the Soviet Union and North Korea and Cambodia. Like any of those countries, they're not pleasant places to live. And this is not just an, it's not a coincidence that socialist states always devolve into hellholes. Let's look at a modern example. Let's talk about Venezuela. Oh, I bet the modern political left hates when you bring up Venezuela. Venezuela was the richest country in South America. Its economy was on the uptrack. It was starting to boom. It is replete with natural resources. And it was held up as the shining, successful example of socialism around the world until it became a failed state. Because here's the dirty secret about socialism. Socialism will always work. It always works in the beginning. Because So it's easy to point at Venezuela in the beginning and say, look at this successful socialist country. Because in the beginning, the government still has all of the money that it made through capitalism. Eventually, though, when that money runs out, 
your government cannot tax the people enough to fund its programs. And then your entire program, your entire country just falls apart. It's exactly what happened in Venezuela. You spend all the money you make under capitalism, then the people of the country don't make as much money because it's not a free market. And then you don't have a tax base in which to tax them and your massive programs, your massive safety nets, they all fail. Two million people have left Venezuela in the last decade. In 2016, 75% of adults in Venezuela lost weight. Uh, the average weight loss being 19 pounds. This is not because they went on some exercise fad. This is because people in Venezuela are starving because the government does not have enough food to feed them. They don't have enough money in which to do it. They don't have the resources in which to feed their own people. It is a failed socialist state. And this is exactly how it goes in every country throughout history. You cannot tax the rich people in your country unfairly because then they leave and you lose your money. And then when you go to the corporations and you try to tax them or you try to privatize industries like Venezuela did with the oil and gas companies, they just refuse to do business with your government. When Hugo Chavez took control of Venezuela, he tore up the, the contracts they had with gas and oil companies and he demanded they pay him more royalties. He said, we need more higher royalties from your companies. And those companies said, no and left. They said, we're not going to do business with you like this. And they left. And then what happened? Then your exports, your oil and gas exports, they just go bye-bye. Because all of a sudden, you may be rich in natural resources, but if you don't have anyone there in which to do business to extract those resources, you don't make money off them. And the government tried to do it and did it much, much worse than the other companies because that's what government does. It is a, it is a bloated carcass that does everything worse than the private industry. Most things, I should say most things, most everything, but some things they might do a little bit better. But the, uh, the idea being that you're gonna outperform a, a gas company uh, in the gas business, never gonna happen. And that's what happened in Venezuela. They, they have so much, so many natural resources and yet they cannot make any money off it. And then when they try to tax their citizens, it just doesn't work. So this is, and then, and then when your social safety net programs, the entire point of your socialist state, when those fail, what have you accomplished other than the mass starvation of a people? Nothing. This is every example I can point to through history. So the, the problem is also though, here's the, here's the good news for people who advocate for socialism. And this is, uh, this is exactly the case in Venezuela. You actually fixed the problem you fix the problem that you set out to address in the first place. Socialists are very concerned with inequality. So congratulations. In Venezuela, you fix the problem of inequality because everyone's back at zero. Nobody is ahead. Everyone's poor. So you have no inequality in Venezuela because everyone's poor. There are no more rich people. You won the game if that's the game you're interested in playing. Me, I don't care about inequality. Inequality is not a concern of mine whatsoever. It really isn't. It, walk that back a bit. It's a concern to an extent. This is why we have a political left. Because inequality, if it spirals too, too far out of control, it is a, it is a big problem in society. And that's when you get the, that's when you have your revolutions. When you stack up people at, on the bottom, when you stack up the poor at zero, and then you say like, oh, there's no way for you to get ahead in life, and you become resentful. And if you get enough people on the bottom 
who can't get ahead, then they just decide to hell with it. We'd like to start fresh, and they want to tear down your society. That is, that is not the United States. That is not this country whatsoever. So there is a, a problem of inequality. The problem is that most people think in the United States inequality is a gigantic problem, and it is not. Because the fact is that if you're in the United States, congratulations, you won the game already. You don't, it's, you already won. There's no, you're already on the 1%. Congratulations. Um, this is actually a great moment to just, to actually just sidebar for a second about this. So the problem with Marxists is that they make a, they make a mistake when they're talking about two things. People will talk about equality of opportunity and equality of outcome in the same sentence. And they don't understand that the two terms have nothing to do with one another. Equality of opportunity. Equality of opportunity is an obvious thing that every liberal person in the world wants. And I use liberal in a loose term, not meaning on the political left, but somebody who believes in liberal ideas, uh, liberal values. Equality of opportunity is a must in any free society. Equality of opportunity means that we should break down the structural barriers that prevent people from having the same chance to get ahead in life. So this is things like rooting out institutional racism or sexism, uh, laws that discriminate, things like this that, that, that force other people into different classes. These are things that no sane person disagrees with. I think, I talk about institutional racism quite a bit. If we find it, if we find examples of it, it should be rooted out and taken care of. My, my whole problem is that people often look at institutional racism and just say the system itself is corrupt, therefore we need a new system. And I say, well, no, that's a terrible idea. Just show me the example of where you see it, and then we can talk about that. My problem is when people don't get specific about an issue, and they just want to, again, tear down the system itself and start over. That's a terrible idea. But if you can find an example of it, let's talk about it and address it together. So this is, this is really the big problem, is where everyone agrees on equality of opportunity, that you should have the same chance to get ahead in life, we all can agree to this. The problem is when you start talking about equity, when you start talking about equal outcomes, then here's the if you ever talk if you're ever talking to someone and they start talking about equity or equal outcomes, that person is either incredibly ignorant or inherently evil. One or the other. They don't there's not a third option because when you start talking about equity, what you're demonstrating to me is you either are ignorant of the history around that word in the games that we played in the 20th century, or you don't care. And what you want to do is burn the system down at the cost of anything in civilization. Those are the two options to me when you start talking about it. Because here's the problem of equality of outcome and why it is probably the most evil ideology we have out there today. And yes, I, I am saying that in the literal sense. And it is more dangerous, at least. I, I shouldn't say it's inherently more evil, but more dangerous than anything else out there because it is a widespread belief on the political left today. Whereas you can point to things like white supremacy on the right and say it is, it's as evil, it's inherently bad, 
But is it as widespread as the thought of equity? No, because nobody takes white supremacy seriously on the right, whereas very serious people exist on the left who believe in equality of outcome. People like Bernie Sanders. He's a major presidential candidate. He's running third right now in the Democratic primary. He is he's for equity. He wants equity. That guy's a full-on socialist, and he believes in equality of outcome, and he doesn't understand the history around it. And here's, let's break it down why it's bad. Equality of outcome forces you, by definition, to divide people into groups. So if, for example, we want to divide, first of all, we played this game throughout the 20th century. The Nazis played it on the right, and the Soviets played it on the left, and all we did was stack bodies on top of each other in the hundred millions. We, that's all it did, all this game does. And people on the left are playing it today, acting like we haven't learned the lesson of the past hundred years. When you divide people into groups, first of all, who decides what groups we get to divide people into? Somebody says, you want parity between men and women. Okay, let's, let's take an obvious example. Let's talk about things like the amount of CEOs in the workplace. You say women are underrepresented. They're 50% of the population, but they account for X percentage of CEOs. That's not 50%. Therefore, there's no parity. Therefore, there's some form of structural sexism in the system that we need to find because women should be, obviously, if they're in society by this percent, they should be in this job this percent. So first of all, you can do that for men and women. Okay. So you want to divide people into, men, into groups of men and women. That's an obvious one. You say, okay, men and women, they're different groups. They should be equal. Equal in what regard? In the jobs of CEOs? In how much they make per hour? How about, what about people's personal choice? What if more women just choose not to be CEOs? What if they choose to raise families? What if women make less money because they go into different careers? Are we going to force women to go into other careers so they make more money so our average pay between men and women decreases, um, the gap decreases? Are we going to do this for every single job field? That men make up 99% of coal miners. Are we going to force more women into this career field? And it, Because women can do it right now. They can go be coal miners. They just choose not to. So are we going to force women to do this? And if we're not, then how are we going to make that parity? How are we going to get that job to 50-50? Or do you only, are you only interested in jobs of power, like CEOs, prestige jobs? Then if so, then explain to me why. Why you're only interested in the powerful positions and not all positions. If you're looking for gender parity, if you want to do that, then explain to me why it's only the jobs that appear to attract power. Things like politics. Women say they want to be equally represented in government. Well, as far as I've been aware, Women have been able to run for government for the past hundred years. They just, if you look at the amount of women compared to the amount of men who've run for office, it's way less. Now, is that because they're not allowed to? No, it's because they haven't. Now, there might be a number of reasons why. But again, we have to explain why and how we're going to do this. And what if it's just not men and women? Then we talk about race. Well, let's divide people by race. And we say, okay, so now we fixed the problem of gender parity. We have got men and women in every single job, in every single field in the country at 50-50. Where 50% of coal miners are now women. Okay, great. Well, now let's do it by race. So now 
um, black Americans. They account for 13% of the population. So every job in America is going to be 13% black from here on out. Okay, and we're going to do that for Hispanics. We're going to do that for Asians. We're going to do it in the universities. We're going to do it in the jobs. Okay, how are we going to do that without imposing tyranny from the top down on people, restricting freedoms of some people in certain areas? We're going to have to force a certain amount of people into each job or we're never going to achieve parity among the races. And then let's say we get there. Let's every job in, in the only example in history, we have gotten parity based on demographics in the population where it, where naturally it never has occurred ever in any area of nature never ever not once but we've done it we have imposed our will from the top down we have we have structured our society and we have achieved parity among everything on sex and race okay well why what about athletic ability what about that for example, I'm 5'10", and I think it's a crime that more people who are not under six feet don't play in the NBA. I, I think it's ridiculous. I think it's discriminatory. It's, it's heightest. They, the fact that they are not letting people who are under 5'10 play in the NBA. Uh, just because I'm shorter and you know my shots can get blocked easier and I can't jump as high. My athletic ability is not, not near the NBA quality. I, why is it that I... I don't, I'm not allowed to play in the NBA. That's ridiculous. And the same with, same with football. You know, there's no rule that says women aren't allowed to play in the NFL. Why are there not women who play in the NFL? That, that is a sexist organization. And you could say it's because they, they base it on skill and it's a meritocracy and it, the best get in, but that's, that's sexist because it doesn't hold our standard that we're going to hold. We're going to make men and women equal among all the fields. So it's ridiculous that more women don't play in the NFL. And we could do this for intelligence. You know, the average IQ is something like 103. Okay? So the, you know, the average person in the United States has a slight um, intelligence. You know, they, they, they're just, the average is average for a reason. Okay, so why is it, it bothers me that more people that all of our doctors, for example, tend to be on the higher echelon of IQ. That, that seems wrong to me. Because I, you know, I was born with an IQ of 85. And I'm functional. And I think that more people like me shouldn't go to medical school. And you say, oh, wow. Uh, you know, maybe they are discriminating against our, our lesser able individuals. So what if, we, what if we divide people by intelligence? What, the problem is you can divide people by whatever arbitrary lines you choose to draw. They choose to do it around gender and race right now. But why? Why do those things matter to people on the left when obviously if we live in a society that judges people based off their characteristics, which is what we should ideally want, should we not want a country that judges people based off how hard you work? how good of a person you are, how honest you are, how well you do your job. These are the things that should matter, but not to people on the left. Because what matters to people on the left are, are your sexual parts and your race. Those are the things that are important. Because we're going to judge you first based off your race, if you're, which is the opposite of what Martin Luther King Jr. wanted. 
we're going to judge you first based off your race and second based off your gender and we're going to divide you into groups and then we're going to make you do what we want we're going to prevent some people from doing some things because for example asians account for over 20 percent of med school graduates but they account for four percent of the population that doesn't seem right we need less Asians in medical school because they're overrepresented and it's making blacks underrepresented. So we have to fix that. That is an actual thing that's happening at Harvard right now. Harvard's being sued by a group of Asians who say that they have discriminated against them at, to promote other minority groups because Asians accounted for too many applicants who would have been accepted based on merit alone. This is the game that is being played, people. It is not a good game to divide people in groups because all it does is breed resentment. And all it does, if you're on the left and you want to divide people into groups, all it does is create backlash on the right. Why do you think we're seeing a, a rise in white identitarian politics? Because if you want to divide people into groups, then disaffected white people are going to band together and say, well, if we're going to play the game of identity politics, I am not going to lose. And they're going to band together and they're going to fight back. And it's not a good thing because you don't want identity politics. You don't want politics based on race to exist at all in an ideal world, in this utopian vision that we all have. In a post-racial society, it shouldn't matter. But it matters more than anything to people on the left because that is what they talk about nonstop. People on the right don't care. You can point to the fringe, the Richard Spencer nutjobs. But people on the right, conservatives, they don't care about race and gender in the same way that people on the left do. They're obsessed with it, and it's not good. In Marxism, they don't understand the history. When you regulate the outcome, when you want everyone to be evil, it always descends into tyranny, always. It's what has happened in every society that chooses to try and implement it from the top down. You restrict freedom. You restrict freedom from people, and ultimately, every time it's ever happened, it's ended in a bunch of people dead. That's just the game as it's played. And it is just, it's ignorance of history to continue to try and play it. All right, let's move on to the next point. The sidebar is done. Let's move on to the next point that everyone, I'm sure, the socialists out there, the people who want socialism, they're screaming at this point. They're saying, that's not fair. You're picking on all the bad examples. Why don't you hold up the good examples? Why can't you, you, I don't want socialism. I want democratic socialism. Okay, all right, guy, calm down, first of all. Quit yelling. But let's talk about democratic socialism. First of all, putting the word democratic in front of something doesn't change what it means. It's not different than socialism, okay? Democratic socialism, it's just socialism. I could say I want democratic fascism, and you'd say that's an oxymoron, and I'd say no, you are, because it, doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense to say democratic socialism. And if, if you can explain to me the difference between democratic socialism and socialism, I'll give you a dollar. I would love someone to come to me and explain the difference. I'd say, well, a democratic socialism is democratic. People vote. People voted for Hugo Chavez. People voted, um, pe people voted him into office. And then he just never left. Does that make it democratic? They voted for it. That's what happened. Uh, there were there have been votes in Cuba, they, you know, been democracy in Cuba. I think uh, Fidel wins every single time, you know. But it, you know, they'd still get out there and vote. It, the word democratic means nothing. If you vote to do something, 
It doesn't make it moral, and it doesn't make it right. We talked about this on another podcast. Democracy is two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. It doesn't make it moral to have a democracy. But anyway, putting that aside, putting that bit aside, um, the, the examples, no doubt, that people are, are coming up with right now as we speak, the examples they're going to point to the Scandinavian countries, they want to talk about how great they are and how we could be more like them. Let's, let's look at the Scandinavian countries. Let's talk about Denmark. Denmark, for example, the, the shining beacon, the happiest place on earth, according to the polls. Let's ignore for the fact that Denmark is a completely homogenous society where the people share an ethnicity and a culture and a history and a religion. Let's ignore the fact that Denmark is for Danes. Uh, they have one people in there in an area that is one-sixtieth the size of the United States. It's about the size of Maryland. Let's ignore for the fact that as a blueprint for a country of 350 million people, it is incredibly infeasible for you to point to Denmark as an example. Let's ignore all this stuff, for example, for a, a second. And let's just talk about the fact that there are no socialist countries in Western Europe. None. Zero. Including Denmark. And you know who agrees with me? The Danish prime minister who said, quote, Denmark is far from a socialist planned economy. Denmark is a market economy. End quote. The Danish prime minister himself is trying to tell you it's not a socialist country. It's not a democratic socialist country. It is, in fact, one of the freer markets in the world. It's surprising to most people to hear this. The reason why people confuse Denmark in, for a socialist country is because they have high taxes and high government spending. This is true. But Denmark also has... Uh, it is, it's ranked one of the top free market economies in the world by both the Fraser Institute and the Heritage Foundation. It has one of, next to Singapore and New Zealand, it's ranked number three under the strongest protection for individual property rights. There's no minimum wage laws in Denmark. Their corporate tax rate is lower than the United States. It is, it has a lot of government, uh, government programs. This is true. And, he, and here's how that went for Denmark. After World War II, when there was a boom in the Danish economy, every other country in Europe seems to struggle, but the Scandinavian countries did fairly well, especially Denmark. It created a lot of wealth in that country. And then in the 60s, they implemented these social safety nets. And what did that do? It led to a collapse of the economy that lasted for decades. Denmark went into financial ruin in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and, and it led to widespread revolt in the country. There were political parties that popped up specifically against taxes in those countries. And it took a long time for them to, uh, for them to right that ship. And then what happened? Why is Denmark now this place where they're doing okay financially? They're not doing fantastic, but they're doing okay. It's because they, they eventually tweaked the system enough over the course of, again, two decades of being a, a not great economy to live under. They tweaked it and they kind of figured it out. And here's how they figured it out. If you make more than $40,000 a year in Denmark, the average person in Denmark pays over 50% of their income to taxes. That's Just to say that again, 
over 50% of their income goes to taxes. Uh, this is not <laughs> this is not feasible um, in America at all. It is just it's one of the worst ideas of all time. Think about how much how much uh, you pay in taxes, and then ask yourself if all these programs that the government um, that the government is proposing to implement. If they implemented all those programs, would you get the bang for your buck that you uh, are going to, that they're going to say you do? The average American, for example, pays less than 30% in, in taxes. So you want to effectively double the amount of people that are going to pay, the amount that people are going to pay in taxes, and then they're going to get what in return? What am I going to get in return for my taxes that I don't have now? Can you point to one thing that is going to benefit me in any way? No. And you, and you want to force me to do it. So Denmark did this. The average average Dane pays 50% in taxes. Um, the average middle class person in Denmark can't afford a car because they have things like a 180% new car tax that you pay in Denmark. So the average the average person in Denmark can't afford things like a car. Um, the Social Security, uh, the well, what the, the Danish equivalent of Social Security, is currently under... Uh, privatization because guess what oh Denmark can't afford Social Security anymore um, private insurance is becoming one of the most popular industries in Denmark because wait times for their universal health care are so long one in five children in Denmark now go to private school because the education system in Denmark is not doing well it's the average Dane after taxes, the average American has more than 27% more disposable income than their Danish counterpart. Now you tell me, is that 20% more valuable to you? Or would you just like to give it to the government? And if you want to give it to the government, for what? The problem with America is that you have people who don't pay taxes telling people who do pay taxes that they need to pay more taxes. The bottom 50% of the United States doesn't pay any income tax. And those are the those are where you find your socialists. They say we want more. Give us more. And as a taxpayer, I say no. There is no barrier that prevents someone from succeeding in this life. It is true that people start have different starting points in life. This is true and we should work to try and even those out the best we can. But evening the starting point out by saying like oh maybe we maybe there's some benefit to having some social social uh, safety nets social safety nets tongue twister maybe there's a benefit to having some well guess what you have the opportunity to succeed in this life if you choose to succeed there are things that the government is never going to be able to control what is the biggest factor for determining whether or not someone's going to be successful in life it's a hard question to answer, but there are some we know for sure we can point to. Uh, do they come from a two-parent household? How educated are their parents? How stable is the environment they grow up in as a child? Right? We know there are certain things that predict the how uh, valuable an adult they're going to make, how 
how productive an adult is going to be. We know there are certain predictors. They're not always accurate, but we know some of them. And they're things that the government can't fix. You can't fix out-of-wedlock births. You know, the government is not, that's not the government's role. It's not going to happen. So the problem becomes the people on the bottom want the government to fix all these problems, and they want to do it at the expense of the people on the top, while ignoring the fact that if you make more than $30,000 a year and you live in the United States, congratulations, you're in the top 1% of earners worldwide. So you're in the top 1% of people in the world, but what you would like to be is in the top 0.1%. Or you'd like the, the, the incredibly effective people in the 1% in the United States to pay for you to go to college. Tell me why it's his responsibility. Tell me why it's my responsibility. You want me to pay 27% more in taxes for your health care and your college. Why? If you want to donate to charity, please be my guest. I think private charity is a good thing. It's excellent. But how can you demand that I pay your charity? That's the bit about socialism that's immoral, is you want to tell other people how they should spend their money for you. That's immoral. You don't get to demand my money. You don't get to take it. The problem with socialism, in a nutshell, is that people who are on the left tend to say they're nonviolent. But taxation, taxation is a form of violence. It is a threat of violence by the government. Because here's what happens. You want to tax me more so you can go to college and you can say, so you can pay your health care. Well, what if I don't want to pay for your health care? What if I just don't want to? Well, I can refuse to pay my taxes. And then what happens? Well, the IRS is going to come after me. They're going to, they might try and sue me. They might try and withhold my money. But then I refuse to do that. At some point in this chain of events, a man is going to show up at my house with a gun. And he's going to take me to jail. At the end of the chain of taxes is a man with a gun threatening your liberty and your life. They're going to take you to jail if you don't pay your taxes. And that's what the socialist wants because that's what socialism is. Socialism is violence. It always has been and always will be. Because what they want is control of your life and your money and they want to spend it how they choose. And when you point to the countless times in history that it has failed, when it has descended into tyranny and mass murder, they say, well, that's not real Marxism. That wasn't real socialism. And if you hear someone who says that, that is not a person you should associate with. Because what they mean by that statement is that if I was in charge, it would have gone different. If they implemented my vision, it would have been great. So let's ignore for a second the fact that how narcissistic that is. If you think you were smarter than Lenin or Stalin or Trotsky, chances are you're not if you and let's imagine for a second that you are you are so smart and that when you get in the position of power and you have to implement your world vision that you're so moral that you're never gonna you're never gonna have the gulags you're never gonna send people off to death camps and force uh forcibly starve six million ukrainians you're never gonna do that you're not gonna be stalin okay Imagine that you're this perfect moral character 
and that you are so smart and so wise that if we could implement your version of socialism, it was, it's bound to work. Well, it's never going to happen because the people you surround yourself with are never going to allow it to happen because this person doesn't exist. Is not, there's no one like him. And if he did exist, then the people around you, the real ideologues who believe this and want the system, they're, you're going to wind up murdered. Ask Trotsky. You wind up dead because you might be moral and you might be unable to be corrupted. You might be a paragon of virtue. You might be the most intelligent person in the world. But you don't get to just control everyone's life. And the kind of people you surround yourself with are not going to be those people. And you are going to wind up dead. So your utopian vision is never going to exist ever. It's not within the realm of human possibility for this utopian society to exist. And when you want to take away freedom from people, which is what socialism does, you are demonstrating your lack of morals. Democratic socialism won't work in the United States. Our socialist programs are a failure in the United States. They always have been, always will be. Socialism is evil because it values the collective over the individual. We shouldn't divide people into groups, which is what socialism does. We shouldn't delegate our individual responsibility to the governmental elite. We shouldn't allow people to control our lives. And when you advocate socialism, this is what you want. You want to do the exact opposite of this. Divide people in groups, delegate power to the powerful minority group of people who you want to put in positions to dictate the needs of the many. We tried it. We tried it throughout history. It has always failed, always, and it always will fail, always. So I, I honestly didn't have a ton of notes for this argument. Uh, I had some about Denmark because I needed some of the stats. But this basically was just this is a, a speech that I gave kind of uh, very, very much off the top of my head. This is a topic I could do hours on, just talking about the evils of this ideology and how much I worry about it. I worry tremendously about the, the future of the United States, the, the modern left that seems to have forgotten history. So anyway, this was a, this was a bit of a downer episode, I suppose, because it's, it's not very optimistic. I don't, I don't see the future being a very bright place in the United States, which troubles me greatly. The greatest country in the history of the world is under threat by people who should know better. So anyway, I think, honestly, that's where we're going to leave it this week. Didn't have any questions. Um, didn't have any questions this week to go over. Uh, I think the, ooh, I think the book of the week this week is going to be a book called Marxism by Thomas Sowell very much on topic with what we were talking about today. Thomas Sowell, again, is the most, um, the most important public intellectual of my lifetime, probably. His, his work is brilliant in every way. He is a brilliant dude. If you haven't read anything, if you've never listened to the man talk, just do yourself a favor. Go Google Thomas Sowell speeches. 
and just listen to him talk. Read any of his books. Discrimination and Disparity, I think, was the first book I recommended on this show because it is that important of a book. And today we're going to, talk, we're going to recommend Marxism by him because it's very much on topic with what we're talking about today. Marx got a lot of things half right, and that's what makes him so appealing. If it was just obviously crazy wrong, then no one would be attracted to it. But it's half right. The problem is people ignore the fact that it's half wrong, and they haven't learned from it. So anyway, Thomas Sowell's Marxism, that's the book of the week. I think we're going to leave it here. I'm Tyler Cressman. I hope you guys have a fantastic week. Hope you enjoyed this podcast, by the way. This one was, this one's important. And I will see you next Monday.